Hey, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I am so honored to be with you. This is one of my favorite churches, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating because I keep coming back. That's the thing. I was telling Pastor Skip yesterday, in this new season of my life, I only go places like I really want to go, where I, where I have friends, where I'm excited about going, where I feel God calls me to go. So that's why I keep coming back here because I love being with you guys. And here's what Paul said. He said, give honor to where honor is due. And Pastor Skip is one of not only the greatest communicators in the global church, but in the world today. Could we give him a big round of applause? So good. And the whole Heitzig family, Lenya, and to watch Nate, he is just crushing it. He is so gifted. I just love being around the Heitzig family, and we're going to have a good time today. So are you guys ready to study the scriptures? Okay, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and we're going to study from verse 8. Now, I'm really excited today to talk during Generosity Weekend. Now, uh, just to let you know where we're going, first, I'm going to talk to you about what our generosity should look like, but then I want to talk to you about the sevenfold holistic integrated redemption that is manifested by the generosity of Jesus. You say, I have no idea what you just said. Stay with me, stay tuned, and you will know. But here's the thing. Gratitude is what generates joy and generosity. So what scientists and researchers have found is that when you are grateful, it actually creates more joy in your brain because it triggers the reward reciprocity center in your brain. So if in ancient days, I'm in your tribe, you give me berries, I'm then grateful. So the reward reciprocity center in my brain is triggered and activated. So then I give you a banana that gives me social favor because my gratitude causes me to be generous. And because I get more social favor, I then have more joy. If I'm ungrateful, then I'm going to be excluded from the tribe and therefore my loneliness and isolation will create depression. So what science is showing is that generosity actually generates joy. Gratitude generates joy. It's a symbiotic relationship. In fact, according to one study, people who are generally more grateful actually give more money to a cause. And not only that, but they have more neural sensitivity in their medial prefrontal cortex, which is a part of your brain responsible for learning and decision-making. So the Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like we are actually more happy. We are actually more joyful when we give than when we receive. Now, I'm really grateful I get to talk about generosity today. It brings me joy to talk about generosity today. Because Jesus talked a lot about generosity. In fact, financial generosity. Did you know Jesus, 25% of the time, talked about money? Now, if I'm Jesus on a mission to save the world, I would not use a quarter of my teaching time talking about money. Yet to Jesus, generosity, finances were so important that 25% of the time, Jesus is talking about money. Now, there's a big debate in the church when it comes to generosity, when it comes to finances, in regards to how we should live our life and how generous God is toward us when it comes to finances. So, for instance, you have prosperity theology and you have poverty theology in the global church. 
So some people say, hey, if you walk with God, God is so generous that he's going to prosper you. After all, Joshua 1 says, if you don't turn to the right or to the left, but follow the law, you'll prosper in everything you do. Abraham walked with God, was rich. Job walked with God, was rich. Solomon walked with God, was rich. David walked with God, was rich. If you walk with God, you're going to be rich. That's what prosperity theology teaches. On the other hand, you have poverty theology. And those who propagate and are proponents of poverty theology say, no, no, if you walk with God, you should be poor. After all, Jesus said, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. And they also will quote when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So the question is, how do we take these two theologies? How should we view them? How should we look at them? Well, first we have to look at, at Jesus. The question is, was he rich or was he poor? On one hand, Jesus claims that he comes from heaven. Now, heaven is a pretty bougie place. I've, I've never been there, but the brochure is pretty compelling. Like, we're talking about streets paved with gold. In other words, heaven makes Dubai look like Detroit. So, that's where he comes from. And yet, on the other hand, when Jesus was walking on the earth, the Bible teaches that he was so poor, he had to say, when he was asked if he should pay taxes to Caesar, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, show me whose image is on this coin. He said, give me, show me a coin which could imply and indicate that he didn't even have a coin on his person. After all, Jesus was so poor that he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have nowhere to lay my head. By the way, there's brilliant subtext there. The foxes represented the Herodian dynasty. Remember, Jesus called King Herod a fox. Birds represented Caesar. Remember, the Roman symbol and ensign nationally was an eagle. So what he's saying is, Caesar and Herod, the eagles and the bird, the, and the foxes, they're about avarice. They're about greed. But I am a different kind of king whose kingdom is not of this world. I don't come to be greedy. I come to be generous. I come to give my very life as a ransom for many. So I'm not like the foxes, Herod. I'm not like the bird, Caesar. I'm doing something totally different. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't have a palace. I'm homeless. In fact, Jesus was so poor that archaeologists have now found in Nazareth that the houses in that community were so small that the house Jesus lived in, with remember, he had brothers, there was a whole family there, was the size of a parking stall where you park your car. So we're talking about the size of a small garage. That was his house growing up. Not only that, but does anybody remember what Mary and Joseph offered for Jesus during his dedication? In the temple, it says that they offered doves. Now, according to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, doves were a poor man's sacrifice. It's if you couldn't afford a bullock. If you couldn't afford livestock, you would just offer doves. That's a poor man's sacrifice. Could that be why Jesus was so angry in the temple? He was so angry when he turned over tables, when he drove out with a whip, the money changers, and those who sold doves. 
Because doves were a poor man's sacrifice. History tells us in the temple, the priests had become merchants and were charging 15 times, as much as 15 times the price. You could buy doves in the marketplace. They were charging exorbitant rates, 15 times the price. And Jesus was not happy about that. Jesus was angry about that. Why? Because he saw they were oppressing the poor. He knew what it was like to have doves offered on his behalf. He knew what it was like to be poor. He knew what it was like to be homeless. So the question is, was Jesus rich or was he poor? The answer is yes. Let me read to you. You got to know this verse. This is second Corinthians, huge verse that, that sums it all up. Let's hear what Paul has to say about it. Second Corinthians eight, nine says, for, you know, and I quote, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Again, he's, Paul says, he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So out of the 41, I'm so passionate about this, and your church does such a good job at this. There are 41,000 denominations among 2.18 billion Christians. The church globally has been more divided than I've seen it in my lifetime. I mean, it's, it's very divided. Jesus said, may they all be one. He said, Father, may my followers be one that the world may know that you sent me. How is the world going to know that God sent Jesus if we're unified with each other? So maybe the prosperity theologians are quoting scriptures. The poverty theologians are quoting scriptures. Maybe, here's a novel idea, we should love everyone even the people you don't agree with, even your enemies. I love this. Jesus was so generous that he not only, though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty, we might become rich, but he's so generous to even say to his enemies, Father, forgive them. To the people who didn't agree, Lord, may they all be one, that the world may know that you sent me. I love this. So too, may we emulate that lifestyle of Jesus that though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty, we might become rich. Because here's the thing, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Listen, when you die, there's no U-Haul behind a hearse. You're not gonna say, oh man, I wish I got more. But you might say, I wish I gave more. Now, what does giving look like in the Bible? Well, there's four types of giving, four primary types of giving in the Bible. Number one, there's the tithe. A tithe simply means a tenth etymologically. It means you're giving a tenth of your salary to the church. In Malachi, it meant giving a tenth of your salary to the storehouse. In the New Testament, Jesus told the Pharisees, you should tithe. Remember, that's a tenth of your salary. So a tithe is the tenth that you give to the church. The Bible talks about the tithe. Number two, it talks about the seed offering. Number three, it talks about the first fruits, the first fruits of your labor you offer up to God. And number four, it talks about alms. That's giving to the poor. So the first three are giving to the church or to God directly. The last one is giving to mankind. Now here's what's fascinating. God calls us to be givers, not only financially, that's part of it, and we celebrate your giving, but he also calls us to be givers when it comes to generosity of spirit. Here's something you're gonna find if you go on the internet. We do not live in a very generous culture. We live in a cancel culture. It used to be when I was in middle school, if I made a mistake, it wasn't documented for all the world to see. 
like nowadays everybody has a Everybody has a global broadcasting device in their pocket. Here's a novel idea. Maybe not everyone is up to the task. Like there used to be a thing called journalism. Maybe everybody isn't worthy of using a global broadcasting device. So if you make a mistake, here's what happens. Your existence can get canceled on the internet. I, in, internet. I have a friend who got canceled on the internet. Every day someone tells him to kill himself. He loves the Lord. He's repentant, but... He feels like his existence has been canceled. Well, did you know God has a kingdom cancel culture? Only he doesn't cancel your existence. He cancels your sin. The Bible says your sins and iniquities, he remembers no more. Why? Because he's generous. He's generous. He has a generous spirit. So to let's be generous financially, but let's also have a generous spirit. Let's forgive Let's choose to love. Yes, let's be people of conviction and not people of convenience. But let's also remember, we're not going to put someone on our hit list if we put them on our prayer list because the internet cancels your existence, but God cancels your sin. News. So, so this is fascinating stuff. Jesus talked about the generosity of his father. Do you remember in Luke 15? He, he used three examples of the generosity of spirit inherent and intrinsic in the father's heart. In Luke 15, he told three parables. One was of a coin that was lost and found by the woman who swept the house and rejoiced that what was lost had been found. Another was of a prodigal son that was eating pig's food, repented, came home to his father's house. The father greeted him with a ring, a fatted calf, a purple robe of majesty. The father rejoiced that that which was lost was now found. And the other is of a sheep that was lost and was found. The shepherd rejoiced that the one sheep, as he left the 99, was found after being lost. This is all in Luke 15. Now, usually when people read that, they see what's in common is that there's rejoicing when repentance happens in heaven. Repentance simply means teshuva. It means to come home. It doesn't mean you have anger in your eyes and hate in your lips and a blowhorn in your hand. It simply means come home. Metanoia in Greek. It means military term, about face, or change your mind. Come home. But what people don't realize is that what all three of those stories have in common is this. It's not about how great these people, sheep, or coins are at repenting. It's how great God is at finding. Here's the thing. A sheep cannot repent. A coin cannot repent. And the prodigal son only repented because he needed a job. He's like, I need a job. So the point of those parables is not how good we are at repenting. It's how generous God is, how good he is at finding. He's the one who never leaves the one behind. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone in the deep weeds, tall grass of left field. Can I encourage you that he's the one who never leaves the one behind? He leaves the 99 to find you. He has a generous spirit. Others may cancel your existence. He cancels your sin. He's generous. He loves you. And that's what you guys do here. Like that shepherd who went after that lost sheep, you guys are people who say, I'll stand for the one. Can I show you a video that you guys have put together, that this team here has put together, about what it means to stand for the one? Through your generosity, this church has been a church that goes after the one and never leaves the one behind. Take a look at this video. Hello, my name is Dennis, and I want to share a story of generosity with you. For many, many years, 
I was homeless and I had my most precious valuable thing in my life was my bicycle. Uh, it, it was my main source of transportation besides the bus line. Um, I rode my bike for many years and I rode to Calvary and a congregant from Calvary saw me riding my bike. One day she approached me and she said, Dennis, I seen you riding your bike down San Mateo without your helmet and I'm very worried about you. So I tell her, well, I don't want to mess up my hair. <laughs> she said, she goes, well, that's not all that's going to mess up if you fly off your bike. A month went by and it started to get cold. It was around October. And she approached me again and she said, uh, Dennis, I have a car. And I actually thought she was trying to sell it to me. And I was all, well, how much do you want for it? And uh, she was like, no, no, I don't want your money. Uh, I want you to have it, but I want you to look at it first. It's kind of old. And I was like, I'm riding a bike. And I looked at the car, the vehicle, and I thought to myself, what a tremendous blessing. I said, I would love to have that vehicle. I've had it for two years now, and it runs great. Everything works. It's such a tremendous blessing to switch from a bike to a vehicle. I, I, I just thank the Lord, and I thank her and her family. That generosity of people from the congregation is just amazing. Uh, I've been coming to Calvary for a little over two years, and uh, since then, I'm able to give back to, like I said, my friends and family and people that need me. They call me all the time, you know, and uh, I'm able to jump in my vehicle and go help. I'm called uh, quite often. People need me, and now I'm able to give back because I have a vehicle, so God has blessed me tremendously. Wow, that's fire. Look at what God's doing through your generosity. We celebrate generosity. Generosity, gratitude, joy. These all go hand in hand. I love that mindset. I'll stand for the one. This has been your mantra after Vision Sunday. This place is my home. These people are my family. I'll protect this house. As you saw in this video, I'll stand for the one. I'll fight to bring those on the outside, inside. Welcome home. This seat's for you. I wish I could say I made it up, but Nate Heitzig made it up, so I got to give him credit. I'll stand for the one. But notice the next line in that mantra. I'll protect this house. I'll protect this house. Through your generosity, you've been a people that say, I'm going to protect this house. Like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As the psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. But this is God's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's doing a great thing through your generosity. As you say, I'll protect this house. Take a look at this next video. My name is Mark Wilkinson. I've been here for coming up on four years and I uh, work in the finance department. Uh, as uh, everybody is aware, just over a year ago, pandemic hit. We here in the finance department put together some ideas on what we could do to make sure that we remained uh, not only financially sustainable, but that we could meet the needs of the community that were rising. Some of our uh, normal events and normal activities simply didn't happen. We didn't have freedom. We didn't have Easter. The bookstore was closed. You know, things along that line. So some money went away. And so we uh, started doing prayer calls. 
Uh, we repurposed a lot of our retail staff to do the kindness campaign. And we, we got donations and we were able to acquire the things that people needed and then, you know, literally deliver them to people, you know, with the curbside delivery. And we have um, a certain amount of bills that have to be paid every month. I got, I looked at all of the expenses, kind of averaged them up and said, okay, if our cash balance after a payroll run falls below this level, then we need to do these things. Always included in that were uh, personnel reductions, um, whether they would be uh, uh, everybody gets a salary cut or whether they would be uh, headcount reductions, uh, furloughs, things along that line. Um, and what I saw was the church, the house, this church, this house, these people rose to the occasion. And when people couldn't come to church here, they found a way to get a, a check-in every month faithfully. Uh, we Our online giving uh, started going up and the generosity in the donations actually went up and we increased overall for the year 2020 just over 5%. So that was absolutely amazing, unexpected. Um, and we were able to keep all of our staff going. To everybody who has continued to give or has started to give or has increased their giving, thank you so much to everybody who did anything to, uh, to further this goal. How crazy is that, that this last year, your giving went up during COVID? Are you kidding me? We celebrate this generosity, not only to say, I'll stand for the one, not only to say, I'll protect this house, but also I'll fight to bring those on the outside, inside. That, that's your guys' vision for this year. Bringing those on the outside, inside. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians, that those who are without God, without hope, without the Christ, Without the Messiah, outside the camp, outside the covenant, God has brought those who were far near. Speaking of the inclusion of the Gentiles, those who were outsiders, disenfranchised, marginalized, pushed to the margins, pushed to the fringes, God has brought in. And through your generosity, you're fighting to bring those on the outside, inside. Let's take a look at one last video to see how God is using your generosity to bring the outsiders in. Hi, my name is Gavi, and I have served with Calvary at the Freedom Celebration for many years. As a counselor, I, I'm usually there when a member comes down or a person comes down from the stadium and they are looking for someone to connect with. We are there for them to be able to get their information. And so we get to be a part of that. We get to share the next steps. We get to pray with them specifically, and we get to follow up with them. When I hear that altar call and I start coming down and then I hear the footsteps behind me, I know that God is on the move and he's doing something incredible in the lives of these people. A time when we were anticipating people coming down from the stadium and two women had approached me and they were excited about 
accepting Christ as their Savior. And so we went through the steps and I provided them the Bible. I was able to pray with them and I kind of shared with them some just very basic information. It was really amazing to me because my husband and I came back the next day and we were sitting down in one part of the stadium and lo and behold, these two women returned with their Bible in hand. And so that was very exciting to me. And so we were able to reconnect with them and just follow up with them, see how they were doing and how excited they were to hear the message again. I'm prior Air Force, so I retired in the Air Force. And so one uh, weekend we had the newcomers um, luncheon. And so one of the ladies that attended the Freedom Celebration attended the luncheon, who just so happened to sit right next to me. And so fortunately I was able to share with her my Connect group, my Ladies Connect group. And she's been a part of that Connect group. Since then she's no longer in New Mexico, she's now stationed in Alaska. And so we're still keeping in touch. Since Freedom Celebration, these past years, we've had over 4,918 people that have either committed their lives to Christ or have uh, been born again as a babe in Christ. I think it's just a wonderful opportunity to be able to serve. I mean, we are the extension of His hands and feet, and we get to be able to do what Jesus says, greater things will you do in my name because I go to the Father. And so we get to be a part of that, and that's exciting. I believe exactly what our, our, our church stands for, that generosity does multiply capacity. And so we get an opportunity to extend beyond our means because of it. And so I thank you all for being able to, to give so generously to this event. Wow, 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 wow. That's what your generosity is doing. Isn't God so good? Isn't that amazing that we get to give to a cause that is so big and so grand and so personal and individual, affecting real lives, real faces, real people? Incredible. So we've talked about your generosity, but now what I want to do for the rest of this Bible study is I want to celebrate God's generosity as manifested through Jesus, which I said earlier, this holistic, integrated, sevenfold redemption manifested by the generosity of Christ on the cross. You will know what that means in a second. But maybe you're here today and you're like, Ben, I'm bearing crosses and losses, dramas and traumas, tempests, tribulations, trials and troubles. I don't know how I'm going to get through this trial I'm in right now. Maybe you're in financial straits. Maybe you're going through heartbreak. Maybe you need God's generosity of spirit to carry you through these storms that you're trying to weather and endure. Can I encourage you that we have a generous God? I found this in my own life. I'm going to speak from my heart on this. But after my brother died and after my sister died and after going through 10 years of chronic suicidal depression, I almost killed myself three times. After getting diagnosed with complex PTSD, OCD, terrible mental illness, I found that I thought I wasn't going to be able to survive. But through God's generosity of spirit, he gave me hope. He healed me. And that's why I live on airplanes these days to spread hope to my generation because that is the issue of our generation. I think our genera my generation doesn't understand how generous God is, that God wants to heal you. And if God could heal me, he's generous enough to heal you. If he could heal me, he can heal anybody. He can heal anybody. So, so I want to show you how generous 
Our Lord is. This is something I'm so passionate about. So track with me. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul the Apostle here says, And being, speaking of Jesus, found in fashion. The word is schema in Greek. It means something that's changeable. Being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's Philippians 2.8. Now, what's happening in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul is doing first century spoken word. He's actually, doing a po- he's actually speaking a poem. Some would argue that this was a hymn that was sung in the early church. It's a six stanza poem, and Paul breaks the poetic meter by drawing out to the front this idea that Jesus was not only obedient to death, but even the death of the cross. So it's not just that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. It's that Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be in the form of God, Morphe Theu, became the form of a servant, Morphe Dulu, took on the fashion, the appearance as a man. He actually went to die on a cross, which was the most humbling thing a person could do. Jesus here, Paul, accentuates and underscores his humility to be so generous that he would die on a cross. Now, This is really fascinating that Paul is writing this to Philippi because Paul thought in Hebrew, wrote in Greek, and spoke five different languages. Now, Paul is writing from Rome. That's what scholars believe. 800 miles away from Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia that was there to spread Roman literature, law, dance, culture to the Macedonian topographical realm. And so their job was to Romanize the world. It was filled with patriots. Paul says you are actually, in this passage, he says you are citizens of heaven. Chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 3, verse 20. You live as citizens of heaven. That's the verb. Live as a colony. You're you're a colony. That's the noun. He's saying just as you Philippians are 800 miles away from the capital to Romanize Macedonia, remember you're dual citizens. You also belong to the colony of heaven. You're here to heavenize the world on earth as it is in heaven. You're here to heavenize the world. And Paul is writing 800 miles away. And what we know from archaeology is that where Paul was writing to, Philippi, we know from buildings that have been excavated that the inscriptions on those buildings are actually Latin. So the chief language that the Philippians spoke was probably Latin. Now, the Latin word for cross is crux, a word we still use today. And that word crux in the first century, listen, was a cuss word. You wouldn't even say this word in polite society to the hate couture. You wouldn't even say that word. So if you were watching Eagle State TV, the journalist or the correspondent uh, there on air, this is what you would hear. Jesus died on Uh, uh, Jesus humbled himself to be obedient to the point of death, even the death of a beep. You would actually, you would bleep out the word cross. This was an honor-shame society, and it was so degrading to die on a cross that if you were a Roman citizen, even you got capital punishment, you were not allowed to be crucified. That was too humbling, unless you committed high treason. It was for vagabonds and criminals. It was so humiliating that uh, the the, the level of degradation, degradation was so egregious, atrocious, and awful, that you would bleep out the word. It was a curse word, the word cross, a curse word. Not just in Latin, Greco, Roman society, but also in the Hebrew scriptures. What did Moses say? 
Cursed. Speaking of a curse word, he said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. What did Paul say in Galatians? He said, Jesus became a curse for us. The most innocent man in history, not only though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich because of his generosity, he also became a curse for us that we might be blessed, showing us a God who manifests himself in the most innocent man in history, though he knew no sin, he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Through his poverty and generosity, we become rich. He became a curse so we could be blessed. That's what Jesus generously did for us. If I was living in heaven, I would not do that, would you? I would not come down from heaven and die on a beep. I wouldn't do that. If that's what Jesus did, Wow. It was so humiliating that if you died on a cross, this is how generous Jesus is. If you died on a cross, you wouldn't even get a shiny new cross. Like you wouldn't even get the new model. You, they would just recycle crosses. Like why would you build a new cross? So it would have been about a hundred pounds of recycled timber with the blood, sweat, and tears of previous victims, perhaps stained on the wood. So just a humiliating way to die. And so what this shows me is the generosity of Jesus, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Our God is Jehovah Jireh, the generous God who provides. Now, this book, Philippians, is 104 verses long. 19 times Paul speaks of the noun joy or its cognate verb rejoice. 11 times he speaks of the mind or mindset. So what I want to do for you as we begin our initial descent, as we begin to wind down from Zimbabwe, I have a few more minutes left. So we begin our initial descent I want to tell you that God, I believe, wants to give you a mindset reset when it comes to generosity. Remember, gratitude produces joy and generosity. This is a book about gratitude. Philippians is actually a thank you letter because Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippians to save his life when he was in a Roman prison starving to death. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. There's his gratitude. He says verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. There's his joy. Gratitude produces joy and generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8, he actually praises the Macedonians, the Philippians' generosity. So I believe as we sort of have a mindset reset, we're going to be propelled to be generous and compelled to be generous when we have gratitude and joy found in the generosity of God manifested through Jesus. Let's make this simple. Colossians 1 says that through Jesus' blood, we find redemption. The blood of Jesus is an archetype, an ensign, a symbol that shows us that we have redemption. Now, here's the thing. I grew up in church. Ever since I was in my mother's womb, I'm a pastor's kid, so I'd hear my dad preach, I'm assuming from my mother's womb. I became a Christian when I was two years old, okay? I accepted Jesus in my heart when I was two. I gave my first sermon in third grade. I started traveling and speaking at 16, and I became a pastor at my church when I was a senior in high school, okay? So I have grown up in church world. Maybe you're like me, and you're a church kid here, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have heard so much about the cross. Paul said, I will preach nothing to you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But I don't even, like, I'm, I'm glad it saves my soul, but like, I've already heard all this stuff. Here's the thing. I want to actually argue that the cross not only shows that God saves our soul. Yes, he does, and I am so thankful for that. But it also shows us a holistic, integrated redemption 
in seven different ways at least, not limited to, but including seven different ways he redeems us. So, so let me talk to you about all the places Jesus bled. If, if his blood speaks of redemption, then notice that he bled, first of all, from the head, the crown of thorns, second and third on both hands and the wrists, the nails, Number four, from the side, the spear pierced his side. Number five, he was scourged and whipped on his back. He bled from the back. And six and seven, he bled through each of his feet. So Jesus bled from seven places. And I want to show you how all seven of these places that Jesus bled through his generosity on the cross, this gives us redemption today. So number one, let's look at the head. He was obedient to the death, even on a cross, as he bled from the head, the crown of thorns on his head. How many of you need redemption for your head? Like, I'm glad God saves my soul, but I also need redemption for my head. We live in an epoch and era of mental illness. Depression rates have tripled since COVID. There's a suicide once every 40 seconds. In fact, I met this kid last night after church, six years old. He was suicidal at six suicidal. He actually found my program on TV. He was channel surfing, found my program on TV, and he said, I want to live now because I see that if God could help you beat depression, maybe he can help me too. And so he started praying, reading the Bible, and he's doing great now. But it's like, at, at six years old, that's gnarly. Like, there are 123 suicides a day, according to USA Today. It's, it's bad. And so our generation needs, like, redemption for our head. Our thought life has gone askew. Mental illness is rampant, prominent, and prevalent. And so I want to tell you, how many of you need help with your thought life? How many of you, your mind wanders and it never comes back? That happens to me all the time. So there's redemption for your head. The Bible talks a ton about your head, your thought life. The Bible says you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The Bible says, put your thoughts on things above, not on things below. Jesus said, take no thought, merimnan. It means anxious, worrisome, foreboding that tears you apart. Take no thought for tomorrow. Paul said, put your thoughts on things above, not on things below. Paul said, take your thoughts captive. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians says, be renewed in the spirit of the mind. The Bible talks a ton about your mind, your head. We need a mindset reset. You know, uh, I, I'm a big fan of neuroscience. It drives me bonkers when people are like, you have to choose between science or the Bible. Like, that's like saying you have to choose between God and the Bible. You know God invented science. Like, are you aware of this? The Bible tells us why. Science tells us how. Science is basically footnotes for God's creation. Did, did, did you know that Christians invented the scientific method 750 years ago? William of Ockham, Ockham's Razor, Roger Bacon. They actually invented the scientific method because they were Franciscan friars and monks, respectively. Of course, Christian monks are going to invent science because they're just sitting around thinking about the universe all day. So Christians invented science. So a lot of people say, am I going through a spiritual battle right now? Or do I have like chemicals raging in my brain? Like, is it science or spirit? The answer is yes. There are psycho-spiritual trans-rational forces playing on the battlefield of your neurobiochemistry. How's that for a definition? Well, what I'm saying is, in the Bible, there's a very thin line between demonic possession and oppression and mental illness. They're the same sort of symptoms. That's because the spirit world and the material world are more inextricably intertwined than we may have previously suspected. So I love studying the brain. Like, God put this thing in your brain called the pons, and that controls your expression. 
So the Bible says, may the Lord's face shine upon you in Leviticus and Psalms. That means may God smile at you. God gave us a pawns so that we can control our expression and actually smile. Can I encourage you to smile more? Lower the bar and laugh more. It's really funny. Uh, a lot of people think when they come to church that the preacher can't see them. Like they think we, we you, a lot of people think, oh, we can't see your expression because we live in a movie theater society where people go and just like look at a screen and zombie out. But just FYI, I'm actually looking at your faces like I can fully see you right now. So smile and nod, people, I'm just saying. But I love coming here, seeing your smiling faces. See, like, like smile more. Listen, laugh more. Did you know neuroscience says that if you laugh more in a healthy way, it boosts your brain intelligence? If you want to be smarter, laugh more. What a cool deal. God's really generous. It's like, want a trick to be smarter? Laugh more. Like, really lower the bar, not, I'm going to be a postmodernist cynic who moved to Brooklyn and rolled, rolled my eyes and winked at the camera. Like, self-referential. Like, let's start Letterman and do the Simpsons, World War I, Lost Boys, like, Lost Generation. Like, we're so jaded. Let's just keep being jaded. Lower the bar, dude. Laugh more. The average adult laughs 15 times a day. The average kid laughs... 400 times a day. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't say, when I grow up, I want to be bored, insipid, uninspired, uninspiring, and I want to laugh very seldom. What did Jesus say? If you want to enter the kingdom, which Paul defined as joy in the Holy Ghost, you must become as a kid. So laugh more, lower the bar. God, God gives us control over our pawns. He gives us control over our orbitofrontal cortex. You say, what is that? That is the part of your brain that's responsible for, watch this, Weighing the potential consequences of decisions, and then before you act of your own voluntary volition, you're actually weighing the ramifications, byproducts, and consequences of said decision before you actually undertake that action. What it means is, it's the part of your brain that thinks before you act. That part of the brain, I want a metaphorical drum roll here, that part of the brain is underdeveloped in teenagers. Neurobiologically, it's actually under, so you're like, does my teenage, does my teenage son even think before he acts? <laughs> Not really. No, that part of his brain's underdeveloped. So I have so many parents come to me like, my son, I'm so worried about my teenage boy. It's like, oh, just give it a few years. His orbitofrontal cortex will eventually develop. <laughs> what does Proverbs say? If you train up a child in the way that he should go in the end, if people leave out in the end, in the end, he will not depart. It doesn't say he won't make stupid choices as a teenager. <laughs> so take heart. Why? Because there's redemption for orbital frontal cortex. There's redemption through the generosity of Jesus bleeding from the head in our amygdala, those almond-shaped set of nuclei in your brain that are responsible for fear and anger. The Bible says that God casts out our fear. He casts out our phobos, 1 John 4 says. That's the Greek word where we get our word phobia, arachnophobia, xenophobia, claustrophobia. You're afraid of Santa Claus. I mean tight spaces. <laughs> he casts out your phobos. He gives you redemption for your head. How many of you need to tame your brain? How many of you need to stop catastrophizing? How many of you need to stop overthinking? I need that. I am glad that I can have a mindset reset because he bled from the head. That's the generosity of Jesus. Number two and three, through his generosity, we have redemption for our hands. He bled from his hands as the nails pierced his hands. Do you handle traumas? Do you carry around with you scars? You wonder if they could never be redeemed? Have you ever noticed how in the story, 
after Jesus rose from the dead, people didn't recognize him? Not only that, but they doubted him. It says, it says some believed, but some doubted. How annoying would that be if you're Jesus? You're like, I just rose from the dead, dude. Like, there's no other, there's nothing left in the truck. Like, there's no other rabbit in the hat. That was kind of the grand climax, and you're not buying this? It says some doubted, and it says some didn't recognize him. Remember Jesus in the, as he rose from the garden tomb? It says Mary thought he was a gardener. One of his best friends thought he was the gardener. Or on the Sea of Galilee, his own disciples, when he told them to cast their nets on the other side, it says they did not recognize him until they caught 153 fish. Then they're like, that must be Jesus. Remember when, this is my favorite one, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples, and it says they didn't recognize him as he's giving them a Bible study from Genesis to the Italian prophet Malachi, I mean Malachi, the whole Old Testament, I'm seeing if you're still awake, the whole Old Testament scriptures, he says they all testify of me giving them a Bible study, and they don't recognize him. I remember a few years ago, I was on an airplane, and I saw this guy that looked just like Tony Hawk. And I'm like, why is he in the unwashed masses of coach class with us? Like, why isn't he first class? Sure enough, he gets up, pulls a skateboard out of the overhead bin. And I'm like, okay, that must be Tony Hawk. And sure enough, it was. It's like, if I didn't recognize Tony Hawk after he's holding a skateboard on the airplane, that's on me. Jesus is giving them a Bible study. And they're like, we don't recognize you. In fact, they're complaining to him about how sad they are that Jesus is gone. And I think Jesus is like, that's on you, bro. Like, I'm, I'm like holding the proverbial Bible. Like, I'm giving you a Bible study and you still don't recognize me. Why? Why, why, why did they not recognize Jesus? There's something mysterious going on there. Could it be that they didn't recognize Jesus because he was so scarred? The Bible says he was marred beyond recognition. Couldn't even recognize him. Say, oh yeah, well that was when he was crucified. He was marred on the cross. His body was bludgeoned and torn apart. But this is his glorified body. But even in his glorified resurrected reality, what did Jesus say after he rose? He said, touch my wounds. Showed his hands. Touch my wounds. The Bible says we will see Jesus as a lamb having just been slain. What does that mean? That means that scars are part and parcel of the resurrection narrative arc. What that means is all the scars that you carry around with you in this life, those scars will become your stars. Those wounds become your wisdom. What you're saved from, you become a minister to. And these scars that you're bearing now are the fellowship of his sufferings that you may share in his glory. I believe when I stand before God, he's not going to say, how many trophies did you acquire? He's going to say, show me your scars. Those are your badges of honor. The scars that disfigured you actually are your resurrection reality. There's beauty from these ashes. I want to tell you, he turns your scars into stars. Number four, quickly from the back. Number four, from the back, he bled from the back. Have you been stabbed in the back? Have you been gossiped about? Everybody who's on the Jesus path will suffer a major betrayal. Even Jesus had Judas. But guess what? Through the generosity of Jesus who bled from the back, he's saying, I've got your back. The Bible says God is your rear guard. 
What that means, it's a military term, meaning God's got your six, he's got your back. When others stab you in the back, God's like, don't worry about it. I got your back. There's redemption for our back. Number five and six from the feet. Remember, Jesus bled through his feet as the nail pierced his feet. Remember, just before Jesus died, he washed his disciples' feet. When he died, there was a nail that pierced his feet. After he rose, it says they clave to his feet. What's going on with the feet? Well, you may remember that just before Jesus died, he, he stooped down and he washed his disciples' feet. And to do this, the Bible says he put on a girdle. Now, back in that culture, a girdle was a slave's garment. It was servant's garb and attire. Today, if somebody walks in with a police uniform, I know that's a police, based on, police officer based on what he wears. Somebody comes in wearing an apron, I say, that's a chef. If somebody comes in wearing a Lakers jersey, I say, that's a winner. West Coast, best coast. <laughs> Except not this year. 80 got hurt and LeBron's out. So the feet, the feet, he, he wears a girdle and he washes feet. Wearing a girdle, people would say, oh, that's the slave of the household. Jesus was acting like Judas's slave. In fact, servant girls would wash the feet of guests in wealthy estates. He was acting like Judas' slave girl. Even though he knew Judas would betray him, Thomas would doubt him, Peter would deny him, he's washing their feet. People say, yeah, he's really generous and nice in his first coming, the Gospels. But in Revelation, it's a totally different, like he changes his tune. It's like a conquering king with a bloody sword and a horse. Yes, Revelation portrays him as the conquering king with the horse, the sword coming out of his mouth. But the book of Revelation also says, chapter 1, that Jesus in his resurrected glorified reality is wearing a girdle. That slave's attire of, here it is, gold. So now there's, it's like a girdle update, girdle 2.0. It's like gold in the girdle. What does that mean? Gold is a king's medal. Girdle is slave's attire. What's, what's that saying? It's saying he's a servant king. Gold for a king, girdle for a slave. He's a servant king. Guess what? The Lord wants to wash your feet. The Lord wants to serve you. You say, no, I couldn't let the Lord serve me. That's too generous. That's what Peter said. You can't wash my feet. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Why? Because my nature is a servant. Philippians 2 says he's morphe, dulu. He's the eternal nature of a servant. He says, let me serve you. So too, sometimes you say, how can I serve God? But what if God says to you, how can I serve you? He wants to serve you answered prayers, blessings from heaven, answer prayers at your behest, fight battles on your behalf, give healing from above as Jehovah Rapha, grant you the desires of your heart as you delight in him and enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. God wants to serve you. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's gold in the girdle. He washes your feet. And as he's that generous to us, that makes us want to go be generous to others. Jesus said, as you've seen me serve, so you go serve and wash feet as well. Finally, number seven, we close here. He bled from the side. There's not just redemption for my soul. There's redemption for my head, for my hands, for my back, for my feet. But there's also redemption for my side as we close. Do you remember Jesus bled from the side as the spear pierced his side? Does anybody remember what came out of his side when they pierced him? Water and blood. What comes out of a woman when she gives birth? Well, I'm a guy, so I'm assuming it's water and blood. I've never seen a birth, but that's what I hear. Water and blood. Just like a mother gives birth to a child and nurses that child on her breast and says, this is my body, broken for you. Literate bodies broken open for a child. Take, eat, this is my body. As she gives of her own body 
to feed her child. So too, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, this is my body because we are born again from the blood and water. We must be born of water and spirit. Through his blood, Colossians says, we have redemption. Something new is born again from his side. We are new creatures, literally new species in Christ. We go from homo sapiens to hopo sapiens, from B apostles to A apostles, from Saul the persecutors to Paul the preachers, from ain'ts to saints. We're a new species. We're born again. But what is born again from his side? Well, what came out of Adam's side when he was in the garden? Does anybody remember what came out of Adam's side in the garden? The rib. From his side came what? His, his wife, his bride. What does Romans say? Jesus is the last Adam. So the first Adam had a bride in his side. The last Adam had a bride from his side. So there's not only gold in the girdle, there's a bride from the side. I sound like Dr. Seuss today, but it rhymes. Good assonance and alliteration. So, so this is where it gets awesome, and I can't wait to tell you this. Watch this. Romans says that while we were sinners and enemies, God demonstrated his love and that Jesus died for us. What that means is, when we were at our worst, God's love was demonstrated at its best. What that means is when you fell short of the glory of God, maybe you're an atheist here, you say, I don't think there is such a thing as sin. Well, do you believe that we are fundamentally morally flawed and actually survive by masticating and eating other living organisms so we don't die? That's pretty selfish. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet even when we fall short of the glory of God, God demonstrates his love through Jesus and that he dies for us. When we were at our worst, that's when he dies for us. And the book of Ephesians likens the church to a bride. So, so the church is called the bride of Christ. So what's born again from, from the side? Something new is born. It's called the church. It's called the bride of Christ. But when did Jesus die for the bride? When we were sinners and enemies. What that means is Jesus did not die for you when you, the bride of Christ, had beautiful, gorgeous locks and Kira nightly high cheekbones, and you look like Megan Fox in her prime, and you have your mascara perfectly applied, which by the way, I don't understand why women can't apply mascara with their mouth closed, but then again, I don't put on mascara, so I don't know how it works. It wasn't when we had the strapless red dress and ice around our neck and high heels on our feet and red carpet ready and the paparazzi surrounding us. That's not when Jesus died for the bride. When did Jesus die for the bride? It's when we had curlers in our hair. It's when we had face glop on our epidermis. It's when cucumbers were popping out of our eye sockets. We had a fuzzy pink bathrobe on our body. We had slippers on our feet. General Hospital season 12 is playing in the background. We have a ho-ho's box in one hand. We have Twinkies in the other hand. We have a Skippy's peanut butter jar under one arm. We have wheat thins under the other arm. We have Chick-fil-A in our mouth. And Jesus knocks on the door with his cross. He says, I think you're to die for. And I say, who? Me? While you are a sinner and an enemy at your worst, that's when my love is manifested at its best. He is so generous that he would love you at your worst. He loved me at my worst. And I want to encourage you that because he's been so generous to give us a sevenfold integrated holistic redemption for every part of us, so too let's go be generous 
let's give our lives, let's give our money, let's give our heart, let's give all of our relationships to God because he's the one who speaks life into dead things. He speaks hope into weary souls. He says, weep not. He's the one who causes the lame to leap, the dead to raise, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. He turns the tomb into a womb, the casket into a cradle, the burial place into a birthplace. The message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. He has been so generous to us. Let's go respond with generosity. We love him because he first loved us. In Jesus' name, can I get an amen? This is gospel. This ain't, this ain't blues. This is gospel. This is good news. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for your incredible generosity that through your poverty, we have been made rich and seated, not in the nosebleeds, but in heavenly places. In Jesus' name, would all of you guys stand with me? What an honor to be with you today. I would love to meet you. I'd love to say hi to you. I'll be right over there in the foyer at the book table. I wrote a book helping people through depression. So if you know somebody who needs hope, if you're somebody who struggles with depression, I wrote a book that's a practical hand guide to help you through that. I'd love to write a little hope note in your book. I'd love to meet you after. But let's take this last song to make much of our generous Jehovah Jireh. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.